Welcome to the Andrew Young School Podcast, where each month we interview a member of the Andrew Young School community who embodies the school's charge to think ahead and innovate in the fields of criminal justice, economics, public management and policy, social work, and urban studies. In this episode, we'll speak with Jan Nyman, director of the Urban Studies Institute. During our conversation, Jan discusses his new book, The Life of North American Suburbs, and how utopian imaginations of suburban living have shaped American cities. He also provides some unique ideas on how to learn more about our cities as we spend time walking through them during these strange and unprecedented times. So I'm speaking remotely with Jan Nyman, who is currently in Amsterdam, but is a faculty member in the Urban Studies Institute with the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies. Jan, thank you for taking the time over the time difference to chat with me today. Thanks for having me. So first and foremost, what was your path to Georgia State and the Andrew Young School? Well, I was recruited by uh, GSU in 2016 to establish the Urban Studies Institute. And Georgia State had been on a trajectory, I think, of uh, well becoming increasingly aware they're an urban university and they wanted to beef up their work in urban studies in Atlanta, but beyond as well. And the strategic plan of GSU actually indicated, uh, you know, pointed directly to uh, their mission of 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 reaching a better understanding of the complex challenges of cities around the world, uh, Atlanta, but but really around the world. And so they asked me to spearhead this new institute. And, and so I arrived in 2016 and have been building it up since then. Now, before I came to, to Atlanta, I was the director of the Center for Urban Studies at the University of Amsterdam. And I did that for five years. I founded that center over there. And, and maybe they knew something about me, uh, that they approached me about that. That was a, a very big center, actually, uh, that had some 60-plus faculty, 70-plus PhD students, a lot of external funding. But uh, yeah, so they invited me to, to set up this new unit at GSU, which I thought was a, a great challenge. Uh, if, if I can elaborate just a little bit on that, because it was really exciting to get that opportunity. They really wanted to build a new institute and were really committed to it, GSU, they st- they, and they still are. And uh, so you don't very often get a chance to build up something from scratch. I thought it was also really interesting because Atlanta, and I didn't know that much about Atlanta, but I knew enough about it, you know, in terms of its civil rights history, uh, in terms of its very rapid growth, that... Atlanta was was at sort of a critical stage of its development, whereas Amsterdam, where I was at the time, has, has been cruising for a couple of hundred years, to, to put it uh, a little bit in exaggerated form. But Atlanta was really, I felt, and I still do, at, at something of a crossroads, and we could make a difference. It's interesting that you bring that up. That leads me to a question I was kind of curious about myself. What what was your reaction when you came from Amsterdam to Atlanta? Were there things from a professional or personal perspective that surprised you about the city and the way that it operates? Well, I mean, you know, Atlanta as a city, of course, it's very much a U, uh, an American city, a U.S. city, but it is at the same time quite different. It's a, it's a strange kind of hybrid. You know, it's a southern city, still is in some ways, but it's the biggest city in the south. And some people further south think it's a northern city. They, they look at it quite 
differently also. The, the political views of Atlanta from the South are sometimes quite different. Um, but th- the city really imp- impressed me. I mean, not necessarily in a positive way. It, it, it struck me, I should say. What struck me about Atlanta is that it was so international, had become so international so quickly. You know, it, it was the, the, the third, I think, third biggest uh, city for Koreans in the United States. And people wouldn't have guessed that. And I, frankly, wouldn't have guessed that. Uh, so a city that's still very much uh, faced with racial questions, uh, but also becoming very quickly international, becoming a much more complex place, uh, much more global, really since the Olympics uh, has become much more global. Uh, and that I thought was really interesting. What I also thought was really interesting about Atlanta, what struck me about Atlanta, and I remember the first time I went up to Stone Mountain and I looked to to the city. It doesn't look like a city, right? It, it's so sprawling. It's so green. Uh, and you have this sort of linear axis running through the city north to south uh, with several high-density areas, you know, Buckhead, Midtown, Downtown, but otherwise very, very sprawling and from a suburban point of view, quite interesting, of course, in terms of its suburban development. Uh, so that to me is very interesting. GSU uh, has been on a very fast trajectory itself. So this, you know, 20 years ago was a commuter school still, I think it's probably fair to say. But over the last 10 years or so, has developed very quickly, uh, has attracted lots of, of really good people, I think. Uh, external funding has skyrocketed and, and uh, new programs have been established. And so it, it parallels, and you often see this, you know, it parallels the development of the city. The university and the city, they're, they're of the same, cut from the same cloth in some ways. And they, they experience parallel development. So it, I, I thought it was really exciting. So zooming out a little bit, I'm curious how you would describe the field of urban studies to somebody who's not familiar with it. And maybe we can do that through the lens of Atlanta and some of the things that you just spoke about. Yeah, well, it's, you know, the field of urban studies goes back to around the 1930s. So it's been around a long time. And uh, even though it's a very interdisciplinary field, and so it, it involves economics, sociology, history, geography, environmental sciences, and, 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 and other disciplines. But it's been around for quite a while, and it's, it has sort of a parallel um, sister discipline, if you will, that is urban planning. Urban studies is not exactly the same uh, as urban planning. But I would say that in urban studies, the questions we ask, the basic questions we ask is, why uh, are cities so important to society? What do cities give us uh, that makes them so valuable? Why can cities be so problematic? Uh, how are processes of urbanization changing the world at large all around us, um, particularly in, in, in recent decades? Academically, we ask questions, social, big social questions, but that are particularly urban in context. You know, that doesn't mean that we only look at cities always. We're also interested, for example, you, you ask about Atlanta, you know, one very interesting question that I would say is an urban studies question about Atlanta, concerns urban-rural relations in the state of Georgia, or what some people call call the urban-rural divide in in, uh, Georgia, which is quite prominent. So we we don't always necessarily privilege the city 
it's also relations of major cities with the with the world around them um and and one other thing that i would say is you know a lot of people study things that happen to take place in cities but it doesn't necessarily make it urban studies almost everything these days happens in cities right uh and we sometimes say it in order for something to be part of urban studies it's something that is not so much in the city but that's of the city you, you see what i'm saying so it's what is urban about this if there's nothing particularly urban about it uh as to why it happens in a city then it probably is not of immediate concern to us we are really focused on the city or parts of the city and it's interesting that you say that because your new book the life of north american suburbs is about the intersections if you will between these urban environments and the north american suburbs and how that is not necessarily the same across all suburbs and you include a bunch of case studies from across the continent canada mexico and the united states i'm curious how you identified the researchers you wanted to work with and what cities and suburbs to feature because it's an impressive array that, that's a good question you know and as uh, in most comparative studies this is really a, a comparative study right this volume uh, the, the key question we ask really is how have North American suburbs evolved since the mid 20th century uh, and we wanted to I, I wanted to have a series of case studies so not one case study not some sort of broad statistical analysis of all metropolitan areas in in the United States or something like that we wanted to have a dozen or so case studies and then the challenge of course that you have is well when we look at all these different case studies we want to be able to generalize to the north american suburb or suburbanization in north america so you pick places that you think well this should really be in it you know new york should really be in it uh vancouver should really be in it uh but you also pick some places that may seem a bit out there miami we we re- i really wanted miami to be in i also wanted montreal to be to be in this uh in this group i was sort of uh, finalizing the choice these kind of choices when i moved to atlanta and that and atlanta wasn't yet in it but now i wanted atlanta to to be in it and i thought it would be a great case also to compare to phoenix in some ways uh as sort of sunbelt cities you know so you you think of cities that you want in there but then you have to match them up with the authors the contributors and and so you do two things at the same time you also look for good people who write well who know certain places really well and you try to get them to contribute and uh sometimes they they jump on board right away and sometimes they can't because they're too busy and then you got to look for somebody else and sometimes it means you don't get a city that you wanted to get or you don't get an author that you wanted to get but but at the end i think we got a really great collection of cities very good people and i think all of these chapters are are uh, wonderful to read all by themselves even if you don't read the whole volume and you mentioned that moving to atlanta made you decide to include atlanta i'm curious how many of the authors in this volume live in or have lived in the places they write about and do you think that that embedding of the author in the place is important to their study all of them have all of them uh and yeah so i think it is really important and and it's really important because you know urban studies if i can make another general point about urban studies what's 
so cool about urban studies, I find, is that if you take uh, the general disciplines, social science disciplines of, say, sociology or anthropology or economics, uh, it things can get pretty abstract pretty quickly. And what's, what's so, what can be so, so interesting about urban studies is that you have a live labor- laboratory, you know, where you can see and feel the city, right? I mean, you can literally, I, I think, feel the city. You can feel the vibe of the city, the pulse. And that's very important in how, we, how the city works and how uh, we classify it. I can't really even think of a good book or a good chapter on a particular city, say, where the author has not uh, really been part of that place. It doesn't mean that anybody who's lived anywhere for a period of time has the ability to, to make that kind of an analysis, right? I mean, it's always important also to be able to step back and to interpret what you see from a more general frame of reference. And, and that's part of the, the, the skill, you know, part of the art of it. That's an interesting point. So when you're approaching a city, say when you're approaching a new city, like when you move to Atlanta, what do you look for when you're starting that analysis? What are the factors that lead to a chapter like one of the ones in this book? Well, I mean, if you say, you know, personally, if I come to a new city, uh, what I look for in order to learn about that city, you know, I walk a lot. That's not easy in Atlanta (laughs) to walk a lot, you know. And I remember when I interviewed... For, for the position in Atlanta. And I had dinner with a group of people in Midtown and uh, somebody offered to drive me back to downtown where I was standing. I said, no, I'll, I'll walk. And they, they weren't totally comfortable with me walking <laughs> back to downtown, I remember. And one very sweet colleague, GSU colleague, actually about 15 minutes or 30 minutes after I got back to my hotel room, called me and asked if I was okay. <laughs> you know? Whether I'd actually arrived, but I think uh, walking through cities, even if the densities are don't really lend themselves to that, as is as is the case in some parts of Atlanta, uh, that's where you get the vibe. And uh, not not by car on bicycle. Yeah, sometimes uh, you have to be careful <laughs> in the U.S. when you ride a bicycle in a city. But uh, walking and and so. You know, also in Atlanta to drive to particular parts of the city. And if you're able to put your car away, park it somewhere and walk or take public transit. Uh, Lots of ways to know a city. And I think we'll get to this subject maybe later on in our conversation. But, you know, what what really one of the things that stand out about American cities, and I think Atlanta in particular, is that it's so sprawling and so diverse that if you were blindfolded and taken to different parts of it and you weren't told it's in the same metro area, you probably wouldn't guess it. Uh, so, yeah, it, it can be a long time before you get a good feel for a place. I love that idea of being blindfolded and moved around a metro because it lends it lends itself to, I think, one of the most interesting takeaways from this new book is this concept of a kind of mythic suburb and whether or not that actually exists. So can you give us some context around that depiction of the suburbs and the kind of utopianism 
that came about with North American suburbs and where that comes from. Yeah, and I think that's really important. You know, this this uh, utopian notion of the suburb, it really started in the 19th century already. And and the way in, in very broad terms, simple terms to, to think about this is that when industrialization really took off in the United States, this happened in cities and uh, the core of cities became very dense, uh, congested, dirty, polluted. And so the first wave, the first real wave of suburbanization was around that time. The, the latter part of the 19th century. And the people that moved out, that moved to the outskirts of the city, uh, were typically very wealthy. And they had large mansions built on the outskirts of the city. And it was very uh, comfortable out there. And it was pleasant and it was green. And it was away from all this stuff that you didn't want to get uh, that you didn't want to be too close with. And so that was a wonderful thing, right, for these people. And they thought it was a wonderful thing. What happened very quickly in the, in the, immediately in the wake of that is that developers and realtors and landowners very quickly saw that this was a very lucrative thing, suburbanization, because it meant the conversion of rural land to urban land. And, you know, in, in conventional thinking about suburbanization, uh, it's often portrayed as, yeah, this is what people want and what people wanted in, in the wake of World War II and so forth. They wanted to do that. And there's truth to that, you know. Uh, but there has also been on the supply side something at work. And so suburbanization became commodified and it was packaged and sold to ever larger uh, parts of the population. So First, it was the very wealthy people, and then it was uh, higher income or higher uh, higher middle income classes, and then it was middle classes. And of course, in more recent times, it's been lower income classes also. So there's been a great deal of, well, you would almost say fabrication of this myth of the suburbs. Now, you know, I, I, sh- I should add immediately, you know, people wanted to, to go to the suburbs <laughs> having been wanting to go to the suburbs because of more, having more room, bigger houses, having a yard, more greenery. Uh, and that's all real. You know, it's not to say that that's a myth and it's not real. For some, of course, that's real. And you got more space than you would have in, in a central city where it takes on a mythical gloss, if you will, is where it became very much almost ideological and became translated and this is the good life. You know, this is the good life. This is, uh, you know, when you've, when you've come here, you have arrived and it's a very stable place. And that really is an imaginary to some extent. And I think that became evident, particularly evident for, for lower income people in more recent times. So do you believe that we're moving past this utopian narrative or does it still hold some element of sway on people's behavior and migratory patterns and things like that. There is still the uh, the lure of the suburbs to some. There, there's no doubt about it, you know, depending in part also what that central city looks like where you are um, and what your what your uh, economic situation is, there, there is still, for some, this lure of the suburbs. There's, there's no question about that. But for many, the suburbs have also become a hard place uh, a hard place financially to be, a hard place uh, to be because of the 
very substantial commute times to get to work. Um, and also the kind of place that is just not this stable environment, uh, I think, that it, was, that it was supposed to be. We've also come to realize that there's been a major price tag on suburbs in terms of environmental cost, for example. Uh, it's sometimes argued, you know, it was interesting in a recent podcast by Michelle Obama, she started a podcast series recently. I don't know if you heard any of those. The first one, she talks about the suburbs and going to the suburbs. And she's in this conversation with, uh, with her husband, with uh, Barack Obama. And they talk about it also in terms of the, the track to the suburbs eroding local communities in the city, right? So, so the move to the suburbs, insofar as it became sort of part of the American dream, also was a very individual thing. Uh, individual for the household, not community. You don't move with the community to the suburbs. It's your family, it's your household, and you probably end up in a single family home in an area with people that you actually don't know. Uh, so in that sense also, it's, I should say, it's a very American phenomenon, you know, more so I think than, uh, than is the case elsewhere. And it's interesting that you bring up that that drain that it may have on this on the central city. Do you find that the relationship between suburbs and their central cities is changing or has changed in recent years? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure about that. So, so the relationship of suburbs uh, to suburbs, but also the relationship of suburbs to central cities. So, so three things have really happened in recent decades, right? Three important trends. One is that the suburban population relative to the central city population has grown enormously, enormously. So, so you know, most metropolitan areas these days, at least say four out of five people live in suburbs, or at least we can say they don't live in central cities. And sometimes it's a lot more than that. So you get a huge proportion of the population living outside of the central city. That's one trend. A second trend is that metro populations generally have become much more diverse. For example, in Atlanta, you know what I referred to earlier, and some of this is due to immigration. So many more people in the suburbs, much more diverse uh, uh, groups of people in suburbs because they often directly, also immigrants, go directly to uh, suburban areas. And also metro populations have become much more polarized in recent decades in terms of their economic position. So, so you know, sort of the, the erosion of the middle class and the relative growth of, of higher income, but also relative growth of lower income people. And if you add these three things up, uh, of course, then what you get as a result of that is that you get very diverse suburban patterns, right? Uh, there are many more types of suburbs. Uh, they tend to vary a great deal in terms of their economic situation. And they also tend to vary a lot in terms of race and ethnicity. It also means there's been an increase in the emergence of, say, polycentric, what we call polycentric urban regions or metropolitan areas. So you get smaller, high-density urban or urbanesque, if I may say, nodes within that landscape. Um, and so all of that means that suburbia has, has very much become the dominant face of metropolitan areas. It's interesting that you bring up 
the rise in diversity and the contrast between suburbs, because one of my key takeaways from the book is this idea that all suburbs are not the same. It's not the Levittown image of the, you know, two-bedroom house with the white picket fence anymore. What are some of the most remarkable variations that you've seen between different suburbs? First of all, I mean, let me follow up for a moment about central cities, since you asked about that, and then I'll, I'll come back to this question. When we talk about the mythical suburb from the past, uh, you can get a, a good understanding of what that meant, the, the myth around it. If you think about what has happened in the past two decades, last 25 years or so, to central cities, some, not all, but some central cities, parts of central cities. Uh, urban living and uh, urban lifestyles have been very much glorified, actually, in the past couple of decades. And that was a huge uh, reversal, right? So let's say you look at the 1950s and 1960s, uh, it was like everybody wanted to get out of the central city and wanted to get to the suburbs if they could. And a majority of people did. And there has now been a return for the last 25 years or so to central cities, particularly young families, uh, highly educated professionals, and urban living has become very appealing. I would argue that that too is a myth, and that too is packaged and sold and pitched by developers and realtors. You know, you want to be cool, move to the city. You want to be hip, you got to move to the city. Uh restaurants, cafes, bars, uh, you know, concerts, movies, everything, the Beltline, everything that you want in terms of your, your free time, right? Consumption, lifestyles is in urban areas, not in suburbs. And so we have seen, although very selective, a major, uh, what is some, some have called the great inversion, people returning to central cities. Uh, but that too, because it is so closely associated with lifestyles and consumption and choices, it can very easily be manipulated. And it's it's a little bit like it was earlier with, with the suburbs. You know, it's not all just manipulation and people are manipulated through advertising or no, it's 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 sort of an interplay, it's a dialectic almost between these between supply and demand when it comes to that. Uh, so, so you know, when you think of Atlanta, urban is a positive, right? Anything, say, from urban outfitters to Pond City Market, the suggestion, right, that it's cool and that it's and it, but it's but it's, <laughs> you know, it's an urban that's a highly sanitized version of when you think of Pond City Market, right? Very in the in, in the details, it's made to look kind of urban. Not really, but in, in a way that makes people feel that they are in an urban environment and you can live on top of it even and you become even more urban. But it's, it's uh, actually very homogeneous. It's safe. It's predictable. It's all these things that suburbs were supposed to be at an earlier time. So, so these things really can change. And the current situation also, maybe we get to that later, isn't necessarily uh, a stable one. Now... You know, when you when you say when you ask about different kinds of suburban environments, so so earlier we, we were talking about well what if you were blindfolded and, and, and so so let's imagine because you know US cities 
Uh, and Atlanta is just one of them, offer a bewildering variety of suburban environments. We're not, forget central cities, just a bewildering variety in suburban environments. Let's say, let's assume that, uh, this is hypothetical, that you were assigned by lottery, totally random, uh, a place where you would be from, where you would live, and you would have the prevailing individual characteristics of people in that area, right? And we're going to hand out lottery tickets, and then it's decided where you come from and where you are and where you live uh, in that city. Uh, with the average life chances, you would then also have the individual characteristics of people in that area and their life chances, the prevailing life chances of those people. And if we would do that, you'd probably be pretty nervous about that lottery ticket that you have. Oh my, where is it going to be? <laughs> you know, Because it will have such an impact on your life chances and, and the challenges and comforts that you would have in your life. So, uh, you know, I looked for, for, for a class I was teaching uh, not so long ago. I looked at two different zip codes in Atlanta. So let's say you get a zip uh, that that uh, where you are going to be. So one zip code, uh, 30305. Zip code 30305 in, in Atlanta. Uh, life expectancy is 84, 84 years. That just beats Switzerland one of the highest ranking countries when it comes to life expectancy in the world. Uh, household incomes in zip code 30305 are twice the average of Atlanta. Okay, uh, You'd be white if you'd be from that area, or a very good chance that you'd be white, about uh, at least two-thirds chance that you'd be white. Uh, or let's say you get, and this is a suburban area, right? This is not central city that we're talking about. Another zip code that's also not central city, that's suburban, 30314. Life expectancy is 71. Imagine that. You're in the same metropolitan area. Uh, if there weren't any traffic, which never happens in Atlanta, but if there weren't any traffic, the distance you, you would drive there in 10 minutes. Right uh, in the other in the other suburbs, it's uh, life expectancy is eighty four. In this one, it's seventy one. It's less than the average life expectancy in Bangladesh. <laughs> you know, it, it it literally is like different worlds within the same metropolitan area, about ten minutes car drive from each other. Household incomes in this zip code are half that of the Atlanta average. So that's a quarter of the average of the other one we were talking about. And there would be a very high probability, very high probability in this one, that you'd be black, that you'd be African-American in this zip code. Uh, and these are not the only variations, right? If you would, if your lottery ticket would, would put you in, in uh, say, Duluth, in uh, Gwinnett County, uh, you'd probably be Asian and, and a recent immigrant, foreign-born. And, uh, you know, so, so there are all these variations that are just... Incredible, and and you know, I for, for my students also, I often feel that I can't emphasize enough. In the case also that these are mostly American students, that you really don't see this anywhere else in the world. Uh, South American cities, maybe, yeah, in in some ways, you know, and and uh, no no doubt that the, the gap between rich and poor can be enormous in some other countries also, but within metropolitan areas. This kind of diversity is a very American and particularly U.S. thing. Uh, and they're all interesting, but this is also why it's so interesting to, to traverse these areas and to traverse these cities and to encounter these very fast transitions. And you could just go from one world to the next, you know. That is deeply fascinating, the level of variance. And I'm curious what we can learn 
from that as far as making sure our cities and suburbs move forward together and find a sustainable future as we go into a new decade in the 2020s. Are there direct action items that you think come out of this research as far as improving or leveling that playing field in terms of things like life expectancy, income, health outcomes, those sorts of things? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, it, it, it depends in part on how <clears throat> radical you want to be <laughs> in your policies. You know, what, what do you want to fix? And, uh, but, but let me, let me uh, preface the rest of my answer with, by saying that this current imaginary, you know, so we are in, in the COVID-19 era, right? Uh, that, that let's hope it's an interlude <laughs> that this doesn't go on forever because it starts to feel like it might, might go on for such a long time. Uh, I think this, this event, I think this crisis, uh, may precipitate another shift. A, a return to suburbanization out of central cities um, because of the high densities that, of course, are at the basis of all these offerings that, that high density central cities offer have to offer, right? Uh, but when it comes to a pandemic like this, high densities aren't necessarily what you want. Uh, and a bit more space to live when you're locked in at home is, is, uh, is a lot more appealing. And when you put on top of that the, the social unrest that has happened in, in, uh, has taken shape in US cities and also in Atlanta could just be, be yet another factor in that. So that if you, if you can call it this imaginary of all the good things about urban living, may again shift. Uh, and that's, for me, that's just a very interesting thing to watch as, as uh, you know, we go through the, the coming years after this. But so to your question about what we can do about it, well, you know, is, is this variety, is this what I call this bewildering variety of suburbs, is it a bad thing? Well, not, not in all respects and not necessarily at all, in all places and at all times, but what is a problem, of course, is the tremendous inequalities that are a part of this variety. Inequality itself isn't always necessarily a, a huge problem, but it is if you have a very large population that is at at the uh, that has incomes that are just way too low, uh, that have housing conditions that are unacceptable, that have unstable job markets that where you can't make a decent living, where schooling isn't adequate where access to healthcare is not adequate, and so on, right? You know, when I look at U.S. cities, I also look at their history. And just the other day, I was watching this. There's a Netflix documentary about Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy for president, did you see that? And, and it's pretty interesting. But it's also kind of depressing when you see the same problems, you know, 50 years ago. It's the same problems. And they haven't been fixed. They're not all urban problems. They're, they're, they, they go beyond the urban scale in some instances. But it, it sometimes leads me to think that there is some sort of tacit acceptance of these problems, that it's, it's not so bad or just, just, just the way it is. or I, I don't know, but this is what one would think is unacceptable, yet it's there. And it, it has persisted for at least half a century or longer. Uh, I think... That in the U.S., policymakers and even sometimes academics tend to be inward-looking when they when they consider the problems, uh, and sometimes they look for incremental solutions at the urban or even the neighborhood scale. The problems are much bigger than that. They transcend that scale, 
I think. Uh, if you observe how cities work, say, you know, and every country, you know, has problems. And cities in other countries also have problems. And sometimes... Uh, sometimes very serious challenges also. But if you look at, say, a place like Germany or the Scandinavian countries, uh, how cities work there, uh, you quickly realize that the national policy context, even the political culture, matter a great deal. You know, if, if our efforts, for example, at community development in the United States are really important, they're important, you know, and they're localized and, uh, and very necessary and, uh, and important, but I think it can never be enough, and it's 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 you're in some ways not addressing the problem at the right scale, uh, and and the overall political economy I think matters fundamentally. Whether you talk about tax regimes uh, or you talk about the political geographical fragmentation of metropolitan areas, right? The ease with which this is also part of the political culture. The ease with which certain parts of a county can incorporate. And so often this, this political process of incorporation happens because people don't want to share burdens. They want to keep their own tax dollars and they don't want to have it spent on somebody else's problems. That is part of a political culture, you know. Uh, if you don't, you know, if you say, what can we learn? I really think it's important to look outside. Uh, and it's not always better in other countries. It isn't. And they have other problems sometimes. But I do think it's important to look what goes on and and our experience in the United States of having these very persistent pernicious problems going on for now on and on for decade after decade uh, maybe something more radical has to happen to fix these things um, now as long as we we can't do the really big fix when it comes to that there are still some other things you can do and I one thing that's that that's crying out I believe for uh, for a po better policy solution, while well, housing is one, and we have some really good people in the Urban Studies Institute addressing those issues. Uh, but another that's also addressed by, by some of our urban studies faculty is transportation. So, you know, if you have a growing number of low-income people who have to, what we sometimes say, drive till they qualify for a mortgage, right? For a house, that means they are way on the outskirts of the metropolitan area. They have to get to work, and it's expensive to get to work. Public transit in the Atlanta region, for example, in the Atlanta metropolitan area, but not just Atlanta, really needs to take into consideration where is the work, where are the people, and where are the people who most need access to public transit to get to work and to get healthcare, access to healthcare, for example. Uh, and, uh, well, one, one of the chapters in the book very much talks about this, and that's actually a Canadian city. Not everything in Canada is necessarily better uh, than in the United States. Uh, but there's a good chapter on Ottawa that talks about the importance of extending public transit to those areas. And I know that, of course, that issue is recognized at some levels. And, uh, so, and the ARC, for example, in Atlanta has also uh, really talked about this issue uh, with a great deal of attention. So to wrap up, I wasn't really planning on this question, but I think it lends itself well to the current moment. You mentioned that the COVID-19 crisis has changed the way a lot of us think about our cities and our environments. And I know for myself and for a lot of people, it's meant a lot more time 
as you mentioned earlier, walking around because it's one of the only things we can still do. So as people are walking through their environment more, maybe while they're listening to this podcast, what are things that you think they should look at to start to understand their urban or suburban context and start to maybe broaden beyond it? How can we learn some lessons from your research and apply them to our neighborhood? Well, it, I mean, it is interesting what you're saying, you know, that the that many of us, in some ways, this this uh, corona situation can give us moments of meditation <laughs> about our situation. Uh, maybe we're just trying to make the best of it. But I do think in the case of Atlanta in particular, when you walk around your neighborhood, maybe walk out of your neighborhood and walk into another one. And many people in a city like Atlanta live in a bubble that is their neighborhood. And from that neighborhood, they go to Lenox Mall or work. But most people actually do not traverse the metropolitan area at all. And that's, you know, that's true for every city, really. We, we many of us live in a kind of a bubble. And so to get out of it, or to maybe to drive a little bit and then to walk around would be very refreshing. Uh, what, what was your... Uh, follow-up. You had a double question, I think, about this. Uh, are there things that we can look for as we walk that we can start to notice how our environment shapes our interaction with the city? Yeah, so when you walk around your own uh, neighborhood, if you do, I think it's important to be aware of what sets your neighborhood apart of other parts of the city. Uh, I think it's useful to think about, to ask yourself the question about what kinds of homogeneity among the people in your area. Uh, and it's also good to think about the connectivity of your area to other parts, you know? How many people do I see in my neighborhood that don't come from here? And maybe you don't see many that come from outside. And maybe you don't see many that come from outside because there's no connectivity to those areas. Uh, maybe your area is purely residential. Of course, that could also be the case. Uh, you know, I live close to, I'm, I'm lucky, I feel, to live very close to Piedmont Park. And there are lots of people who come to that area from outside the midtown. And there are good connections. And I think, and, and it's always nice to end on a positive note, right? I, I think Piedmont Park is a wonderful, wonderful public space uh, with relatively good access that Marta provides to get there. And, uh, you know, the... It's possible to, to, to create porous public spaces in cities that are accessible to a large number of people. And you can walk into Piedmont Park and you, you see a cross-section of the Atlanta population. You know, it's, it's, it feels very nice and it feels very urban. <laughs> it's, uh, it's what cities, we often say and we want to say that cities are about diversity. And it's what makes them, it's what makes them creative and combustible and exciting. Um, and too often, though, at a finer scale, people of certain kinds are sorted into different types of suburbs. And it's just so good for people to come together in these kind, in these kind of parts of the cities like, like Piedmont Park. Well, Jan, thank you so much for chatting with me today. And if people want to learn more about your work, of course, they can pick up a copy of The Life of North American Suburbs. But is there anywhere else that they can look for you and find what you've been doing? Well, I'm on the GSU uh, website, you know, on the USI uh, 
website and, and the Andrew Young School. Uh, I have another book. I'm not sure if it's already out. I didn't get a copy yet, but maybe that has something to do with COVID-19. Uh, I have another book coming out on the history, evolution, and future prospects of Amsterdam's Canal District. A totally different kind of story, but one about urban preservation and uh, sustainability. That uh, That's also really interesting. And lots of color photographs. Well, that always helps as well. Thank you again, Jan. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. To learn more about Jan Nyman and the Urban Studies Institute, visit urbaninstitute.gsu.edu. Jan's book, The Life of North American Suburbs, is available now from the University of Toronto Press. The Andrew Young School podcast is produced by Taylor Olmsted with production assistance from Jennifer Giratano. Our executive producer is Ivani Raval. We are a production of Georgia State University's Andrew Young School of Policy Studies located in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. To learn more about the Andrew Young School, visit us online at aysps.gsu.edu or follow us on social media at aysps.gsu. And we'll be back next month interviewing another policy thought leader from the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University.